Gracie Spinks was brutally stabbed by a man, a former colleague, that she'd reported to police for stalking her. I called it off because I didn't have no feelings for him. Um, and then he became, like, obsessed with me and wouldn't leave me alone. And basically loads of things happened. Um, and then on the 4th of January, before work, he was sat waiting at my horse's field like waiting for me to go there, which scared me a lot. The 23-year-old died just months later, killed by Michael Sellers at the stables where Gracie kept her horse. Sellers took his own life later that day. Now, more than two years later, an inquest has heard about what Derbyshire police officers did or didn't do. The jury were asked to consider two major police actions. First, their response to that call that Gracie made to them in February 2021. And secondly, their response to a bag of offensive weapons found close to the stables where Gracie was later killed. And that bag contained things such as a knife, an axe and a note that said the words, don't lie. In front of Gracie's heartbroken family, the jury found in both events the police hadn't done enough to investigate. Sellers was deemed low risk. The bag, which also contained Viagra tablets, dismissed and destroyed. The police officers involved in Gracie's case drove a coach and horses through the concept of basic policing and common sense. Ignoring the obvious risks, investigating absolutely nothing, and recording absolutely nothing. If this is the prevailing culture at Derbyshire Constabulary, then this is not a handful of bad apples, but the entire rotten orchard. Today, police apologised. But simply, as a false, we failed Gracie. And for that, I can only offer my own and the false's most sincere apologies. The five officers involved in the case have been sanctioned but continue to be on the force, which says since Gracie's death that it's appointed a stalking coordinator. Gracie's family say it still isn't enough, but it's a start that all victims deserve. I'd like to think that Gracie will make some changes across all the police forces eventually in this country. So they all do the same thing and they all deal with stalking in the same way, with proper training, first of all, and advocates in place to deal with stalking complaints and a coordinator to coordinate that. So I want to make some changes in Gracie's name. If we could call it Gracie's Law, Gracie's Change, whatever, um, that's how I'd like her to be remembered and then her death wouldn't have been in vain. In moments like this, we often hear the phrase lessons will be learnt. In the wake of such tragedy, Gracie's family hope they are. Catherine Ovatotsi, Sky News in Chesterfield. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And I'm really happy and privileged and honoured to be joined by my very special guest today. We've said that we're going to do this podcast many times. Your diary's busy, my diary's busy, and finally we get to talk. Please introduce yourself. My name's Isla Traquere, and I'm a journalist, but I specialise in crime, in particular murder and women's issues. Um, I've been a broadcaster since I was 21, a writer, an editor, a producer. And at the moment, I've got a podcast series called The Storyteller Naked Villainy. And it's the third one that I've done. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Isla, for making time. We're actually recording. It's late into the evening for you. And I know you've had a very long day. And yes, you mentioned your podcast, which has done incredibly well. So huge congratulations. And actually, when we last spoke on a podcast, it was for your podcast talking about Sheila Garvey's case. I deconstructed the case talking about coercive control, which was a concept you hadn't heard of before. It's similar, actually. Most people hadn't heard of it and still haven't. So it's so good to spread that awareness on podcasts. And now I hear you talk about coercive control in your cases. And in fact, you challenge your own language in your most recent series, which is a fantastic series about Dr. Brenda Page. I recommend all my listeners go and listen to it. I've had many of my listeners actually email me to say, Laura, you really need to look at Dr. Brenda Page's case. It really is a case of coercive control and stalking. And Isla talks about that. And I just think, wow, it's the power of language of being able to spotlight and unravel what coercive control and stalking are really about. And I really appreciate your honesty as well, Isla, of just challenging your own language of when you first reported on the case and taking your listeners back to that and being actually very clear about what's changed for you in your learning journey. And I just think that's such an important part of the process as well. Yeah. And I really do have to thank you for so much of this because, well, for your listeners know, you and I have known each other for quite a long time. We actually first met on a online crime show, two British blondes in LA. And then we had so much in common that we knew we'd end up our paths would cross work-wise. And then, of course, when I did that case, I knew I need someone to unravel it, to unpick it, and you're the perfect person. And that conversation and that episode has had and still continues to get so many comments, like Laura's insight. And since your beginning, in fact, I think I promoted your very first episode, I have been an avid fan of Crime Analyst. You really do so much good. I couldn't be a bigger supporter of your work. Um, you know, every episode I learn something new and it's important for me and everyone listening to be constantly curious and challenging ourselves. And absolutely, you know, I've been listening back to my interviews from 20 years ago when I did a documentary when it was an unsolved case at the time, although we knew who was the prime suspect and the only suspect. And stalking, I don't think we used that word. Her sister described it as pestering, following her around. Um, there was an interview, it wasn't actually myself, but it was my colleague described the relationship, which was domestic violence, clear and simple as being a stormy relationship. So I've gone back and had to listen to myself painfully and think, well, I wouldn't say that now. So I've got the blessing of A, being able to examine this man finally going on trial and sharing the full uh, trial. And I can't wait for you to hear all the evidence, particularly from the accused killer, uh, now convicted killer, sorry if I'm giving it away, but for you to unpick his language, the way he manipulated, the way he controlled, it's fascinating. And it's by learning and educating ourselves that we can actually help others, whether that's a friend, a loved one, um, sometimes it might be our own situation. I myself now identify one of my past relationships as being coercively controlling. And I just didn't see it. I mean, I knew he was messing with me, but I couldn't quite see it. And what your work does is really help us identify and the, the red flags that you give us and all those things in the wording and well, no, it's actually this way. And you know, she's doing nothing wrong. Because what you do as a as a victim 
is you blame yourself. And I regard myself as being quite an intelligent, aware woman, particularly with my work. And I have such shame that I ended up in a situation like that. More recently, this is not shame-based at all because it was not that there's ever any fault with this, but when I ended up with a stalker or someone who's completely unrelated to me, but I think there's so much shame attached to these various crimes that women find themselves victims of that we're somehow have brought on ourselves or we, we could have done things differently. And really we couldn't because these people are masterminds at committing their crimes. And it's all about their charisma, their charm, which as you say are manipulations. It's not the personality. Can you hear can you hear what I've learned from you that I was saying back? Your listeners will know. <laughs> I'm just cheering, you know, and I'm cheering for you. And I'm just so pleased to hear that. And no woman should ever feel shame for what a man puts them through and subjects them to. And you're right, Isla, too often that is the primary emotion. And it's namely because other people make us feel that shame. And we feel internally that we look to self, first of all, because others look at our behaviour and are so quick to blame and shame us for what happened rather than to point the lens at the perpetrator. And then, of course, I've said it a million times um, a week, perpetrators are charming and manipulative. That's exactly what they do. And they become more and more skilled as they carry on and get positively rewarded. And oftentimes we see Darvo happening where the perpetrator will deny and try and discredit the victim and reverse the victim and offender role. And too often people just believe that narrative, even though it's uncooperated and the evidence and the facts do not support what they're saying. And we still see that present day in cases where a man's word will just be substantive enough, despite evidence, despite the facts, despite forensic evidence, despite someone maybe even witnessing what happened. So that tells us about the epistemic imbalance. It tells us about patriarchy. It tells us about misogyny, this internalized view of women that's negative, that women are liars, that we make things up, that we're hysterical, which comes from the womb, all these things that get attached to us. So there's always a lot to unravel because it's not just the individual woman's experience. It's actually the macro aspect to how did she get there to feel that it's her sense of shame when actually it belongs to the perpetrator. And that's everything that I've been trying to change of focusing on the perpetrator. And yet, sadly, we still present day have police not taking victims, particularly female victims, seriously and blaming them when things happen and loading them up particularly domestic violence victims with safety plans, all these things that they're meant to do to keep them and or their children safe, and yet they do nothing about the perpetrator. This, to me, is just the crux of the issue when I review murders. Time and time again, I see the same pattern, and it's that that repeats. And it's so disheartening to see that still happening present day. And that's you and I have connected again Yes, we did talk about Sheila's case. We met many years before that. And sadly, I ended up when I was pregnant talking to you. And I still remember the walks that I was taking whilst pregnant. And you're telling me about a neighbor who is obsessed with you and is doing terrible things to intrude on your personal and uh, your physical parameters and boundaries and making you feel unsafe. And you're having to report this to the police and being made to feel like you're the problem. And I still remember those walks and hearing day after day, week after week, because this went on for months, 
that you weren't being taken seriously. Yeah. There was a conversation with you that was absolutely critical in me taking action to leave. And I don't want to think about what might have happened if I hadn't. And I remember feeling bad because we have, you know, a professional understanding of each other. We also are friends, but I don't want to overstep my mark with you. And I remember being like, look, I'm really sorry to bother you about this, but I need your advice. And it's crazy to think that I was even kind of like, oh, I can't bother her with this. But then I did bother you. And thank God I did. Um, I might not have moved as quickly as I did if it wasn't. And it really was. There was that one conversation when you said, you need to leave. This is escalating. You need to leave. And you were absolutely right. And that's when I immediately, that was me. I was decided I needed to get out of there and as fast as possible. And my mind was made up to not only leave that house, but to leave the country for a while. Um, if it's helpful for your listeners to hear a bit of background about my case, I'm happy to go into that. You know, I hate talking about it, but I also understand that it's helpful. I, I mean, during the pandemic, I ended up back in Britain and uh, stuck in London. It wasn't really good for me because I live alone. And despite being in a big city, it was incredibly isolating because we weren't allowed to mix and people weren't nearby. And I had an opportunity to move to the beautiful countryside. And I grabbed that opportunity first with a rental property, loved it so much and had some advice from people who were into knew about finances and said, you know, be worthwhile, actually, maybe you getting a place out here. And that's when I didn't really think I would. Started looking, found the dream house. If anyone's seen The Holiday with Kate Winslet, just sort of imagine that type of cottage, except I had a cottage on either side. It was a a terrace of three and I'm in the middle and I bought this absolute dream home and thought this is it this is where I'm going to be able to sit and write my book and I was in the middle of doing a script and it was I just needed to do some renovation and what was supposed to be my dream home really did turn into a nightmare and it is it's like the script of a horror film quite frankly what happened to me and I didn't even know that it was happening because it started off with a bit of an odd neighbour. Um, one of my first interactions with them, there was a big red flag because he'd blocked my vehicle in. Um, I hadn't even got the keys to the house yet. I was just taking my mum to the area to shore and go for a walk. And he accused me of climbing into his garden, trampling on bushes and letting my dog fall. And I explained to him, I don't have the keys to get into my own garden, never mind to yours. My mum's disabled. How on earth would we? And I, you know, but what I did was it bothered me. I'd bought the house, but we hadn't exchanged. So I was legally obligated, financially invested with lawyers. So I went back, knocked on the door and a woman answers. This is his, might as well be wife, but they've been together a long, long time, not married. And she was so lovely. And I said, look, I need to clear the air because a thing happened. You know, I'm not really comfortable with this. Had a conversation. He was extremely apologetic and very nice. And I thought, thank goodness. And I remember probably messaging you and other friends saying, I'm so proud of myself. I went and dealt with this and it feels all nice. And he was so friendly and they're really looking forward to me moving in. So I was grateful that he was being friendly when I saw him after that, because after the first incident being a bit, ugh, um, his friendliness, I was like, okay, this is good. But then I recognised he wanted to talk to me every single time he saw me. And it wasn't just a, hello, how are you today? Um, 
and not picking up on cues that I'm holding a 25 kg bag of plaster in my hand and I've got a workman in my house waiting for me. And I'd have to say things like, I'm so sorry, please don't think I'm rude, but I really have to get going. I remember saying things like that. Then it got to the point of him coming in the house without telling me. Um, to be fair, the door was unlocked because I was going in and out a lot. And also this is in a a countryside environment where people would probably leave their car keys in the ignition. Not me, because I've lived in London and LA, but really, you know, kind of safe community. You wouldn't think that crime exists there. So I had to sort of tell people, make sure you don't let this guy in because I'm not comfortable with this. Um, always coming over and finding an excuse. Oh, have you, if you're going to butcher, you need to go to this butcher. Oh, you should be buying down lighters. And, I, you know, he knew I didn't have much money. So there's all these kind of just overly, it was too much. But that wasn't a crime and that wasn't something I could do anything about. But I was just trying to step away. So I'd sit in my car a bit longer and pretend I was emailing someone till he'd go away because he'd often wait for me. He would hear my car coming back so I'd have to manoeuvre it and he'd come out the house and be standing there ready to have a conversation. So as I withdrew, as I created the, the boundaries, there was an absolute switch in behaviour to anger and rage. And it got to the point where the night before I was due to move in, he exploded on me, shouting and swearing, accusing me of entitlement. And it was over. There was a tile slipping on the side of the roof. It was, if it fell, it would fall in his garden. He'd been going on at me to get it fixed. Couldn't get a roofing company. Finally got a builder to do it. Messaged him saying, we're just going to pop the ladder over now. And then he came out and said, oh, I'll help you, but then turned around and slammed the door aggressively. So I looked at the builder and thought, well, we'll just carry on. And that's when he came out and effing and blinding at me. I delayed moving in because I was so shaken by this. At that point, I managed to get a moment with his partner alone. She said, look, you know, I should have told you this before. He's such a lovely man, but he's got some mental health issues. There we go again. This is me like, OK, I have great sympathy for that. Um, he needs to be communicated to in a different way. She says, can you please, please be the one to reach out to the Olive Branch? She said, he's very he's very childish and vindictive and you need to be the one. Anyway, the bridge was burned as far as I was concerned. I did reach out. I did give the Olive Branch and he still wanted to come at me. My housewarming gifts from friends were bushes to create shielding, um, hanging plants to put in my conservatory, but that really didn't do anything. He wasn't picking up. He was getting angrier and angrier to the extent where I had to put bamboo to block my conservatory window so I can't see out, he can't see in. And that's when he took a chainsaw, a hedge cutter, and he absolutely butchered my garden. And it was only that with what I would regard as criminal damage of my property that I called the police. I was assured this is not okay. I told them some of the things that had gone on. Don't worry, someone will be out to see you very soon. Not that day I knew, but it would be soon. They didn't. I was told to block his number and avoid him. A couple of days later, I'm driving back from the vets. The one occasion I left my phone at home and I see him in the rear view mirror. And if I carry on, we're going to arrive home at the same time and I'm going to have an unavoidable situation. So I thought... I'm just going to pull off the road to this farm track. There's a a little uh, shack where you can buy bread and things like that. And he swerves off the road behind me and driving in a, not in a camp. He was not indicating, he was not intending on going there. And he swerved his vehicle around to block the entrance. So I had no choice, but if I got out of my car to face him and I sat there shaking and 
pretending to look for change as though I was going to buy bread. I was going along with my own little, you know, excuse for going there. Just this ridiculousness. And then it just hit, what are you doing? Get your car started. Get out of there. And then he saw me, you know, switch into reverse uh, and start. And then he, you know, swung out, called the police again. I was assured that someone would come see me. Eventually, I had community police officers, two women. Fantastic. Could not praise them enough. They explained to me, this is stalking and harassment. And I think that's the first time probably that the word was used. They validated me because I, I gave them the list and they said, no, 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 this is breaking the law. This is not okay. You should not be scared of him. A plan was put in place for a police officer or sorry, two tra taser trained to go and give him a good talking to. And I was going to get a six foot high fence of cameras put in. And I genuinely thought that would stop, stop it, nip it in the bud. I moved out while that was going to be executed because I knew he would explode over this and it didn't happen. I had to chase the police up. Do you know I've moved out? I'm waiting for you guys to go and talk to him. And then eventually a begrudging uh, officer went round and then emailed me. said, you had a nice chat with him and his partner and it's just a misunderstanding. And I said, no, no, this is not a neighbourhood dispute. And he'd validated him. So there's where the police involvement derailed plan of action. And that was it. He was emboldened. And things got worse and worse and worse from there on in. I had to contact my local councillor, who then I sent him all the emails that this police officer had sent to me saying, I will not be your go-between and I should talk to him myself. And I said, that's going completely against the advice from your, your female community police officer colleagues who said, do you not have any you know interaction with them? And there were so many things that happened, but basically the arrest point occurred when he was naked, um, triggered my security cameras at the point of where my fence, um, he was putting something against the fence to climb over. He was butt naked, picked up something small and laid it beside the, it was actually a collapsed clothes horse, not a ladder, but you would use it to climb over. And um, I happened to be on the phone to the inspector at that moment who was apologising for the mishandling from the original officer. That's when they arrested him. But again, that's not where it ended. He was then released on bail. And I thought, OK, he's on bail. He's not allowed to do all these things, cross onto my property. He got released late on a Friday night. First thing Monday morning, as soon as his partner had gone to work, he's in his dressing gown and nothing else, slippers on his feet, with a camera behind bushes outside my bedroom window. Caught on camera. I phoned the police thinking they're going to arrest him immediately. No, it was breached over and over again. And I got told we can't keep arresting him because it's going to eat into We haven't charged him yet. It's going to eat into our time when we do need to interview him again. It's went on for months. I just moved out, moved in, moved out, kept trying to go back again. I'd go back with friends staying with me. Um, that didn't stop him. And then the final moment was I'd had family come to stay, a prearranged visit. I only moved back in so they could you know, be there and, and experience the house. But it wasn't particularly pleasant, to be honest, because I was on tenterhooks. And within half an hour of my family leaving, um, he started doing things that day. Um, it might sound like silly things, but it started like banging on the walls. And then I was painting a windowsill and he was standing in his garden, just staring at me the whole time. And then that evening, by chance, both neighbours on either side went away on holiday. It was dark. And I can only say either he put a ladder against my wall or something telescopic because there was something banging against the exterior of my bedroom wall. I was absolutely terrified. 
I phoned my friend. Her husband came and picked me up. I grabbed my dog, plastic bag with a toothbrush and a pair of knickers, and that was me gone. That was me leaving my house. It's just unacceptable, Isla. I mean, I remember having all these calls and voice notes with you back and forth and the detail of it, this drip, drip, drip that uh, other people might sound innocuous and unremarkable. And I remember saying to you, this is stalking. He is fixated and obsessed with you. And you initially said, well, I said it to one of my friends and she just said, oh, just ignore it as if it would just go away. And I just want to make this very clear so that everybody understands this. Everything that Isla has described, this pattern of behaviour, this intrusion in your life that is unwanted, that is persistent, this is stalking. The fixation and the obsession, this is not a neighbour dispute. This is somebody who's fixated with you. He knew about you before you moved in. He had obviously Googled you. And we know that. Now, why the police didn't take it seriously, oftentimes they do tend to think, well, this is just a neighbour dispute. This is something quite minor. But I was appalled when I heard that one of the officers said to you, I'm not the go-between, as if this is just something where you've just fallen out with each other, particularly because Wiltshire Police, the chief in charge of stalking and harassment across the across ACPO, so the Association of Chief Police Officers, which is now the National Police Chief Councils, he was Wiltshire's chief constable. So this is a force that should be getting it right. And that's why I was so appalled that in 2020, 2021, it was still being treated like a minor nuisance crime by multiple officers, not really just one. You did get the initial one removed. But I don't like having to say to victims that you need to move or you need to change where you are. I really don't like saying it unless I really have to. And I just felt with this individual, everything that was happening for you. And I remember how happy you were to buy this house. I remember looking and seeing on Instagram, you're wearing all these different onesies and your brother's helping you do all the work yourself. I mean, you put a lot of love and care and time and effort into that property and you were so happy. And then this guy changes everything. And it made me so angry on your behalf that you had got this idyllic cottage and you'd poured all this time, money, love and care into it. And then you've got this guy just letting himself in, asking you about food and saying he's going to make you a sandwich. And on the face of it, it seems quite nice. But when you don't want this attention, when you don't want this person, you've not asked for them to give you this attention. In fact, you're distancing yourself and you're boundarying them. You're trying to be polite. You were risk managing him. And women have to do this every single bloody day of our lives because men don't respect our boundaries. And it makes me so angry. And then when we reject them, they then turn into, or some can, these vengeful individuals that, and I want to make this point clear, as a lone female, when you're living in a property and someone is intruding in your safety, because at home we should feel safe, it is really scary If you hear things next door and you hear that something's being put up against your wall, it stops you from sleeping. This individual had a profound impact on you. And I know you didn't really want to talk about it because you didn't want to go back to that place. And I know a lot of people who feel that way once they've moved on. And look, I've been stalked too, so I totally get it. 
I totally get how somebody can make you feel that way and you want to put it behind you and move on. But unfortunately, it changes you forever. It does have a profound impact. And the police could step in and actually not create secondary victimization. They should be doing the right thing. You had two female officers who did, and then nothing happened. And this drip, drip, drip just got worse and worse. And, and that's unacceptable. There was one occasion where I phoned the police and again, I would minimize it and I'd focus because I'd been told to phone 101, rather, which is the non-emergency line to log all the things that happened. And again, this was a, a breach of the bail conditions that he was angrily sweeping and throwing things, but he was on my side of the property. And this had gone on for quite some time. And I phoned the police twice. And the second time I phoned them, I said, I'm really scared. I cannot go out of my house. He's outside my lounge and my door. I can't get out. And um, I got put on hold for 10 minutes. And then the operator came back and said, sorry, it's not bad enough. And I said, do you want me, or along the lines of, would you like me to let him in and assault me? Would that be bad enough? I mean, that's what I was dealing with. And the sandwich incident that you mentioned there um, is something that does get brought up because it can sound so like, oh, that's nice. Your neighbour offered you a sandwich. It wasn't. He climbed over, before I got the fence, he climbed over my back wall into my garden came in my conservatory without announcing himself. And I had my headphones on in an animal onesie, pulling nails out of the floor. And he said, you, you've you not eaten, have you? He'd logged away that I don't eat red meat because I think he'd offered me a butcher as a suggestion. I've got salmon, I've got too much, insisting. And I said, no, I've got stuff in the fridge. He insisted on making me this. So I thought, I'm just going to have to accept. So he makes me the salmon, he goes away, makes it and comes back. But then he doesn't make himself one. He makes one for me and then stands and watches me eat it. And I was just so uncomfortable. And that was one of those moments. And I wish I could say that the point of me leaving and him being charged was the end of it, but it wasn't. I had to leave. I, I kind of ran out of favours and sofas and, and people's places to stay. So I went to go and stay back in the States and I lived with my brother and I found myself, you know, sleeping in my little brother's spare room with a suitcase of my belongings and my dog. And this is not where I'm supposed to be at this point in my life. Then I find out about a month or so later that the CPS are considering not pursuing the case because I'm in America. And I think there was an expression used at some point, there's not a problem anymore. And I said, let me be clear, I cannot live in my house because of this. And I was told that they were adamant that they were not going to pay for my travel after initially being told they would pay because they said, we need you you know, to attend the trial. Are you willing to do that? And I said, yes, but I can't afford it. I've financially, just financially, what this has done to me has destroyed me and continues to do so. I have this idyllic house sitting in the countryside empty and I can't do anything with it right now because... Who wants to buy a house next door to a stalker? And I've not really spoken about that publicly because it's something that's continuing to damage me. And um, my whole life, everything about the way I'd managed my life and how it's supposed to be. Can anyone listening, can you afford to have a house sitting empty that you can't live in, that you can't use, that you can't rent out, that you can't, you know? And not to mention that the PTSD, the trauma of going through the trial, um, I had to pay myself to fly back. I got told I could ask for video link 
And I think we got to two weeks before the trial and I still hadn't had permission. I thought, I know what's going to happen. They're going to drop it. I'm going to fly home. And I flew back. I'd asked for, for a screen. He'd refused it. So the screen was put in front of me. At one point when the court adjourned because of a technical fault with a screen, he came out of the dock and went and chatted to his lawyer. And I was just sat there and I'd just poured my heart out in tears in the witness box. And he's just standing there and no one's noticed. And eventually he goes back around to the dock and I'd flag over one of the court staff and say, you've, you've just, oh, and they went over and had a little chat with them. The barrister didn't have half my evidence. She didn't have my stalking diary, which, as your listeners will know, is an absolute key component. They didn't have the videos and the photographs of the damage it caused to my property. They didn't have the aerial photos. My dad took a drone down because I was asked to provide photographs for a better understanding of the property. None of this was there. And when I finished giving my evidence, which took an entire day, it was just utterly traumatic. The barrister came through and said, I shouldn't be saying this to you but you've been badly let down by the, the CPS because I didn't have half the stuff that you needed. Then I have to go through the trauma of a few days later and I didn't stay in court, obviously I didn't want to see here. In the newspapers, they're reporting his evidence that I'd showed nude photographs of myself to him, that I was obsessed with him and Darvo. And uh, I had a journalist, uh, you know, the conclusion, it was found guilty and... I found out even that 24 hours after it was in the newspapers that I officially get told because they hadn't logged it in the computer that day. I'm chasing up victim support saying, my friends just sent me, it's in the papers, he's guilty. We haven't been officially told. Um, all of this was just adding to the trauma of me evidence gathering, um, fighting, and, and even to find out what the, um, the verdict was. Uh, another th thing was with regards to prior to the trial and when things were still going on, the local councillor said to me, you can ask to get cameras put in, covert ones. You can ask for them to do a cyber investigation because we'd found out at this point, yes, he had been looking me up. So I was a news anchor in Britain for years and then I moved to America. I was out of the country for about 10 years. So I didn't really think people would still remember or recognise me from that role. And it wasn't until much further into it that my neighbour said, oh, no, no, he, he told everyone that a TV presenter was moving in. He knew who I was. And I said to the, the police kept saying, well, it's very difficult to prove stalking. It's difficult to prove intent. I said, well, if he's Googling me all the time, and I also had heard something from someone else, he knew I'd been on the BBC, which he'd gone on my social media. It's the only way he could have find, found that out. That I did a radio programme in Scotland. So he had been monitoring me. And I got told, we don't have the budget and you'll need to wait 12 months. And with regards to the cameras, absolutely no way was that going to happen. And then... I get my, I've got my security cameras in. He's triggering them at certain points if he's crossing onto my property. And during the court case, I'm accused of stalking him because I've got him on camera. They didn't show the naked video because the barrister said, well, it might be viewed as an intrusion of his, but are you kidding me? It was horrible to have that thrown on me. And then this made it even worse. It was a magistrate's court. So there was a legal advisor because the magistrates are not lawyers. They can be lawyers, but these were upstanding members of the community. And there's usually three, but I had two. And the legal advisor is a lawyer. And that's someone they can say, excuse me, can we just check a point of law? Or if there was something going horribly wrong, they can intervene. He interrupts my evidence and says, Sorry, can I just check when you're saying that the police told you that you should record everything? Do you not just think they meant to write it down? And I said, 
no, I said, quite frankly, if I'd just written it down, we wouldn't be here right now. And that's the truth. So I was being accused by the legal advisor. That's not his role, which then, of course, teed up the defence lawyer to then go even harder at me on that issue. I would like to say again, when the guilty verdict came through, that that was it. No, then there was a month delay because there's reports. And then I flew back to America, flew back again. There was a really bad storm. The trains were all off. I couldn't get to court. I had to beg to do my victim impact statement over the laptop. And I'd done a new victim impact statement because someone had told me like after the trial, oh, by the way, you can do a new one. You should incorporate what you've gone through in this past year, moving country, et cetera. So I did up a new one. I think that was me saying, keep doing the updated victim impact statement because a lot of people are not told that. And that every time you are part of a process or something new happens, you should be updating it. But the police don't tell you that. And that's where things can fall down. His defence lawyer blocked me. Um, I can't remember how many days in advance, but he said it wasn't enough notice. And I was told in strict terms that I was not allowed to read my updated one. I had to read verbatim the original, which was still very powerful. But they didn't, the court didn't get to hear what had happened to me afterwards. And even then, so he's found guilty, he gets the maximum community service hours and a fine to the court, not to me. So I'm not reimbursed for any of the money I've lost, which is just, I can't even imagine, the loss of my work, my time. I lost who I was for a long time, friendships. As you say, there were certain people saying, oh, sorry, sirens in London, um, telling me, oh, just he's just a bit of a perv, and uh, just ignore him, just tell him to go away, you should just shout at him. That's the last thing you should do. Apologies for this musical interlude of sirens. And uh, it was so devastating. And then there's been uh, two reported breaches of the restraining order. The second one was bad. I went out for an absolutely essential trip to this property. I had to go to connect my phone to a new thermostat. I couldn't connect any other way. I checked he wasn't there. He wasn't there, but he arrived back. And uh, I'm not sure if he'll be able to keep this in or not, but he it was certainly recorded with the police. I, I was going out the property, realised he'd come back and he was heading straight for my car on my property. And my dog was in my car. The car was unlocked because she sets the alarm off. Nothing says Isla's here than my alarm going off repeatedly. And I was really frightened that he was going to go go after my dog. Um, so I, I decided to race up the stairs and then he heard me and he hid behind a bush. So he's watching me as I put my things in the car. I'm just in an absolute panic state. One of the things I just can't get in the car, so I put it into this garage and I come back around and he's coming out. I was so angry and I'd avoided eye contact with him through the many, many incidents. And I looked right at him and he spat at me, but the spit didn't hit me. Um, so I raced down to the house, phoned the police get told, because I'm on a fast response. Apparently my house is on fast response. Certainly not that day, but this lady was really nice reassuring me. But half an hour passed, the police still hadn't turned up. And I said, my dog's in the car, I need to go. I think it took the police about three hours before someone came. I had to go and wait in a car park nearby, just hyperventilating, uh, having a panic attack. And then I was with the police for four hours. This all eventually goes to court. The police are wrongly told not to attend. And the barrister has none of the evidence. And I either had to go back a month later and go through it all again. But I just I couldn't face it. And I said, I just can't do it. So the barrister 
had a chat with his lawyer and said, you know, would you extend the restraining order by two years? And he looked at my new victim impact statement and he agreed quick smart. So it's still, I have not gone back there since that occasion. Um, and that's nearly a year. And quite frankly, I don't ever want to have to go back there. And when the time and opportunity allows that I might be able to sell the house, I won't go anywhere near the place. I'll, I'll hire people who will have to go through my personal things that I'd abandoned. And it's just everything about it is just so invasive still of my life. As much as I said to you, um, you know, starting the year, not really wanting to talk about it. It's, it is important for people to hear this. And that's why with you particularly, I don't mind sharing. And I am all right right now in this precise moment talking about it. But my life is still affected by it. I still have PTSD. I've had to spend an absolute fortune in therapy. I was being triggered every time I saw a white van. Can you imagine how many there are in London? I would immediately go into hypervigilance, check the number plate, check the driver. And even once I'd assured myself that it wasn't him, I'm still like this. And the person I'm with or whatever, at that moment, I'm just like, sorry, I've just, I've, I've gone to my other place. I've gone into my, you know, fight, flight, freeze mode. And um, EMDR therapies really helped me with that. So thankfully, I'm not so triggered. But there's other things. I just feel unsafe in the world. That's And it's, I have anxiety about going to the shop sometimes. Some people might look at me and I'm, you know, I'm back working on British TV and go, oh, she looks fine. I mean, I can put that face on. And there's certainly been occasions where I've been in tears in the makeup chair because something's happened. And then I've got to get my makeup on and go on live television and pull it together. And I do. And then as soon as I'm off air, I'll fall apart again. They don't see me hiding in my home, living like a recluse. But that's what's happened to me. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. 
And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. And it's unacceptable. You know, I say it again, Isla, I've been your advocate, but I'm your friend. And, you know, it really is unacceptable. You wouldn't have had this drip, drip, drip go on for so long if people had done their damn jobs. And it's the reason why I created Stalking Law, of putting evidence before Parliament through many victims' testimonies to say, but the police don't do anything until something significant happens, even though I keep telling them he's calling, he's turning up, he's appearing, he's loitering. We had lots of victims give testimony in Parliament, and that's when David Cameron said that he would change the law. And then I set up Paladin, a service for victims, to ensure that there's that support. And yet there's still these failures, and it is so disheartening to hear. You know, one of the things that you said that will resonate with many is the shrinking of your world, that your world became smaller and his space for action is unchanged. He can just do what he wants, but yet you're the one having to come away from the home that you created, living out of a suitcase. And I said to you to come to America to get some respite, just so that you could have some peace of mind because you were not able to sleep. You weren't able to eat. You were in a fear state. And I know you. You're not somebody who becomes fearful easily or unnerved by someone. Look, you've knocked down doors of suspected killers and so on. So I do just want to make that point that this is the culmination of a, of a man who is intrusive in your life and posing a threat because there is a power imbalance between men and women to your safety. And this is where police officers have to really get this stuff because I'm so fed up of them. Oh, well, he seems like a nice bloke to me. Oh, it's just a big misunderstanding because they've never experienced this shit. And it's about time that all police officers had gender awareness training. And by that, I mean this power imbalance that women have to be careful when we walk even down the street to go to the shops. We can't run in the middle of the night like men do because we're fearful for our safety. We're not allowed to leave drinks unattended in pubs or clubs in case someone puts something in our drink. We constantly have to risk assess our safety. And yet when something does happen, when we are pushed to call the police, when we do not want to, they make these very clumsy errors and your world is the one that gets shrinked. This is what I'm trying to change with the perpetrator register so that we change this culture of looking at the victim and telling them, change your name, change your address, change your phone number, change your job, disappear yourself, and then don't go on the internet and then this will stop the perpetrator. That is absolutely bananas to think that you changing everything will stop his behaviour. And we know that he most likely has been looking at your social media. Various things have happened, and I, I won't go into the detail of that, but it's ongoing, and that's the point. When you have a burglary, the burglary happens and it's done. 
But stalking continues this drip, 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 and it has a profound impact on the victims. And so the register, while putting stalkers and domestic abusers who are repeat serial and dangerous on the same register as sex offenders, for me, is one of the answers. It changes the culture of police not looking at histories of a perpetrator and focusing on loading up the victim. And that cultural shift is so badly needed. In so many cases, this happens where there's no history check on a perpetrator. And I can't say why that is, because when I joined the police in 1996, and my background is in forensic and legal psychology, it was never as a warranted officer. But the first thing that I was taught in the intelligence branch is you look at the histories of the people, the victim and the perpetrator, and you join it up. And you go after the top 10 to 20 problem people, because we know with Pareto's principle, 80% of the crimes committed by 20%. You go after that 20%, we know the same names pop up. And what absolutely baffled me at New Scotland Yard was that they did this for organised criminals, for terrorists, for burglars, for robbers. And I said, but what about domestic violence perpetrators and stalkers? Why don't we do it for them? That was something I wrote about in 2001, and I've been trying to change it ever since. And you and I have had so many discussions about this. You've become part now of the campaign and the petition where we've had just under 275,000 people sign it. So many of them are victims themselves. So many of them are family members whose daughters or sisters or loved ones have been murdered. You know, I call these cases murder in slow motion. And it can be the physical murder, like with Gracie Spinks. And Gracie was 23 when she was stalked and murdered by a man called Michael Sellers, who was 35. She was 23. So immediately there's an age issue and he was her supervisor at work and he was stalking her. And she reported him and she didn't want to report him to police, but she did because she was fearful and the police don't investigate him. What they do is they give him words of advice and he's sent on his way and Gracie is too. Well, four months before she's murdered, there's a bag that's found in the paddock close to where she keeps her horse. And in that bag was an axe, various knives, a hammer, Viagra, a note that says, do not lie. His workplace had investigated him and found eight other women who had said that they had been harassed by him, stalked by him. The things that you described about your neighbour, the pushing boundaries, the becoming obsessed, the pestering for dates and being told no and then turning nasty. That's what this guy was doing. And yet the police failed to ask any questions about him. They failed to even do anything about those weapons being found next to where she kept her horse. Instead, they put it up into or they log it as lost property. It doesn't even raise an eyebrow that these are very serious weapons. And then Gracie's murdered. And the police have accepted the failings. But I can tell you, Isla, it's with great, great sadness that they accept the failings, but they did accept the failings in another murder of a pregnant mother called Rachel Slack in June 2010 where pregnant Rachel was being stalked by her ex, Andrew Cairns. She had a 23-month-old toddler called Auden, and she went to the police and said, I feel like he's stalking me, and I'm fearful he's going to kill my son because he keeps saying he's going to grab him and he's going to take him and take him away. 
So he made threats to kill. And we know that one in two of stalkers, when they've had a relationship with the victim, if they make that threat, they will act on it. And Rachel tells the police this. They arrest him and then they release him the next day. They do two dash risk assessments on him and they write her up and her toddler as being high risk of serious harm and homicide from him, but they do nothing about him, absolutely nothing. A neighbour calls up to say, I've seen Andrew Cairns again near the house. He's distressed. He's saying he's going to grab the boy, Auden. So it's called in again, the police do nothing, and he stabs Rachel, she's pregnant. So he kills the fetus and he kills Auden. I've heard Derbyshire police say this before. We will learn the lessons. I've lived through these cases. I've trained on these cases. I try and do everything I can to change police culture. But that's Derbyshire police. You're talking about Wiltshire police. And Wiltshire police have just been in the news again for all the spectacular failures around Claire's Law where they've let 25 people down very seriously because they've refused background checks when women have asked under Claire's law for the history if the person they've been dating has been abusive or violent to anyone else and they've failed 25 people, three of them were harmed. Now that's the chief constable now who's a female, Catherine Roper, who's being transparent about their failures and I applaud that. What I don't accept is that this is just a one-force issue. This is a force issue across the country. We know about misogyny within policing. I worked there in policing for 10 years. I could do a whole series on the misogyny in policing. But yet nothing's changing. We've had Baroness Louise Casey's review, which again I hugely applaud, which showed that time and time again perpetrators for domestic abuse and stalking and sexual violence are unchallenged. Their histories aren't joined up. The police have a terrible attitude that is misogynistic and sexist. And the Met were told they had to change. But it's not just the Met either. We had Sarah Everard. I mean, how many more cases will it take? It is so angry-making, I can't tell you, to for you, my friend, to have your life turned upside down by a man who they refused to sanction. And what happened at the trial was an absolute travesty and shock, and totally preventable. You should never have been put through that. The fact that they only showed a a tiny portion of the evidence that made it look like it was much lesser. The fact that he was allowed to darvo you. He, in court, said you were stalking him. Says every stalker, says every domestic violence perpetrator. The prosecution, Crown Prosecution Service, have to wake up to this. And the police... And that's what I'm talking about when talking about gender-based training, that they understand the very principle of what's going on, why men behave like this is for power and control, and that they are enabling them. They are green-lighting them to carry on, and then we have these horrific murders, and then they try and blame the victim. And it's unacceptable because there's lots of good practice that we've tried to change laws. I've created, I mean, I've got the book Policing Domestic Violence next to me, which I wrote with two extraordinary police officers. We put all the good practice out there. I spend my life training people, writing guidance, doing podcasts, but it's not changing, Isla. And that's why I want the duty on the police that they have to identify the top 10 to 20 prolific, serial, violent and dangerous domestic abusers and stalkers, that it's an automatic duty that they do that and that they put 
these men who have histories. Some of them are convicted, so that's very simple for them to go on the violent and sexual offenders register once they're convicted, you would think, but that's still not happening. So Claire's law doesn't work because they don't even do it with the convicted offenders. And then you've got the unconvicted, where they say things like, oh, well, he doesn't have a history, when they don't even investigate them and don't even look. Exactly. I um, immediately started, when I was speaking out about this, was, was to echo your calls for the stalking register because it makes common sense. It's an intelligence gathering tool, just very basically, for police to be able to go and refer to. And it's a potential deterrent because that's something that will impact them in some way when they're on a register. And it doesn't make any sense. There is zero justification for there not to be a register for these offenders. And one thing you mentioned, the a couple of police forces there. Every time I've spoken about this on television or radio or in a newspaper, I'm inundated and, and it breaks my heart. The first time I did an interview, I came off here and I went in the car and my phone had blown up and I just burst out crying as I read story after story of desperate victims telling me what has happened to them and how the police aren't doing anything. And certain things, like there was a woman, I think she was in Scotland, it was an ex, he was sitting, he threatened to kill her, and the police knew this, and he was sitting outside her home in his car every day. And they said to her, oh, well, he could do that every day for the rest of his life if he wants. Now, that's just completely wrong. And I told her that. And what I do is I refer everyone on to Paladin. I myself use Paladin, not through you being my mate. I went through the normal channels and I applied and I filled out, you know, and did all the assessment. And that was so helpful because, again, to have an advocate who understands who's gone through the process. And I thought, this is wonderful. And what I did was I then connect my advocate with the police officer and say, please use her. She's gone through this before. SPOs, the police they hadn't dealt with an SPO. I had to bring it up to them and they were open about it. We haven't done one of these before. And it was actually a more senior police officer who'd spent hours going through it all. And this is the, you know, the rapid report response stalking protection orders designed to be put in place to protect a victim while awaiting trial. And um, I think the magistrate had never heard of it and wanted me to go to court and give evidence. And then the police solicitor said, I'm advising you not to do this because they're going to use this against you because you're going to talk about stuff in open court and they'll say there'll be an unfair trial. So there's a loophole there. So again, this is why a register would be so key. I, th there's there's a few things, the SPO, nice idea, not working, but it could be used in another way. The ISACs is another great thing that you've been calling for for so long. I mean, it's, it upsets me when you tell me, well, I've been, I've been calling for this for two decades. Why haven't they done it? There is no excuse. And if there's anyone comes out with, oh, well, there's not enough money, all you need to do is look at the cost of one murder trial, one murder trial that we could prevent. Let's imagine how many more could be prevented. And prevention is better than reacting. And I'm so sick of hearing that. Oh, lessons being learned. No, you're not. You're not learning lessons because it's happening again to another woman, another woman. And I know these names. I know these cases you're talking about because I've heard of them as well. That rucksack and the, and the horrendous, there's a kit in there. That's what that is. That's a kit. A murder kit. A murder kit. And it blows my mind. And 
I know that you train police officers. And one of the problems is you've got another, like, you know, a new lot coming in and a new lot. And then you've got the older generation who just do things their certain way. And the fact we have to, and I, I know you've had to do this sometimes with men, is say, do you have a sister? Do you have a, you know, an aunt, a cousin, a really good female friend? Imagine it was happening to them. And sometimes then the penny drops like, oh, yeah, OK. Because otherwise I feel that they do view us in a particular way. And, and I felt maybe something to do with my job. I mean, I literally was dressed in animal onesies most of the time with a beanie on. I looked awful. I was not dressed in any sort of glamorous way. And even after the renovation finished, I was very careful. I wore baggy clothes all the time because I didn't want, him, didn't want to entice him or make it worse. But, you know, the fact we even think about doing stuff like that. But we as women shouldn't be blamed for our, our job or our life or, our, or the way we look. I went offline. And it's really important for my job to be online. I literally disappeared. I posted the odd picture of my dog in a sunset and I'd post locations that I was not. And if someone was like, oh, are you in blah, 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 immediately delete it. Please don't put where I am. Um, all those things I've still got to consider. But sorry, I've gone off on a tangent here, but the work you're doing is so important and you can hear me. I'm getting so angry about it. And if I could knock down doors or, or do more and using my voice and telling my story is something that I can do to hopefully create a better awareness and understanding and then hopefully empathy and then maybe other people feeling the call to action. And I, what I do get is a lot of the victims saying, thank you for speaking out. Thanks for sharing your story. I wish I could do more. And what you do in changing laws and writing laws, creating laws and, and banging on those doors is so invaluable. And you already have saved lives, Laura, and you will continue to do so. I couldn't back you more strongly in the calls for the register, for the ISACs. I also feel that it's really important to have a multi-agency approach with, um, with mental health specialists because, in fact, I was on TV today talking about the murder of three people and it was by a paranoid schizophrenic who'd absolutely been let down by the system. I'm not going to go into it, but it was one of these cases, well, police are not mental health specialists and that's not the job. And that's where we need something joining the dots because I believe that every stalker has some sort of mental health diagnosis that hasn't yet been discovered or maybe it has been because by their very behaviour, by the very definition of stalking, a pattern of obsessive fixated behaviour designed to cause fear and alarm, that is a mental health diagnosis there, you know, just in those words. If you're doing that, that's not right. Um, so there has to be an approach. Most perpetrators do not accept they've done anything wrong. They get more angered. And that's why sometimes police involvement can be a rocket up their butt to be even worse. And that's what happened with mine. It escalated. It got worse. So I think there has to be all these different things. And I know there's three police forces in, in England anyway that had specialist units set up as a trial. And I saw a documentary on it and it seems to be a good thing. Again, that's something. Why is there not specialist officers in every force that if there's a stalking case, right, this person knows what to do here. They're trauma informed. They know how to deal with the victim. They know how to help them gather the evidence, because I appreciate, again, it will always kind of be on the victim to, to identify when something's happening. So anyway, well, there were so much single points of contact in every police force. I mean, that was something that was developed when I worked with Gary Shewan, who is the chief officer lead. And in fact, at Paladin, we trained them all, the SPOC, single points of contact across every police force. And still there are issues. And there is a statutory body called MAPA, and that statutory body deals with offenders. And that's where we want the stalkers to go. You can have a specialist in stalking 
join that meeting and they can sit there, the same as a domestic violence specialist and an ISAC, an independent stalking advocacy caseworker, you can co-opt those experts onto the panel when you have a stalking case. And that's what I highly recommend is done. One of the challenges is that if you have a sort of a specialist multi-agency team for every type of crime, there just aren't enough people and meeting times for that to happen. So for me, the statutory body already exists called MAPA. But what is not happening is that it's an automatic thing, i.e. when I was in the Met, I had to call in favours. I would speak to the DCI and say, please, can you hear this case it's a stalking case or it's a domestic violence case. He's a serial perpetrator. Please, can you hear it? And it, they would do it as a favour to me. I don't want it to be a favour. And to be honest, Isla, I don't have the time anymore and or the inclination to keep calling in favours because I too hear from women all across now the world who have the same problem with their cases not being taken seriously. And that's why this automatic duty, there's a couple of parts to it that are important. Firstly, it's to say that you mentioned Isaacs. I mean, I want Isaacs in every region so that there is an independent stalking advocacy caseworker. They must be independent of the police, but they are a specialist, trauma-informed, and they can give you advice and support. They can give you emotional support, but trauma-informed support, and they can give you all your options about the criminal justice system or the family justice system or civil justice system. They need to be in every area. Claire's law is the thing that came in after Claire Wood's murder. And she was murdered by George Appleton, a serial perpetrator. It's another case that I was involved with reviewing. And the whole point of Claire's law was to ask if there's a history, right? You start dating someone, they start behaving in a way, or like the neighbour for you, Barrett. You can ask the question of the police and others, and then they make a decision, look at the perpetrator's history. Is there a history? Do we share that with the victim? But well, the problem is right now, 56% of questions that are asked about someone's criminal background, the women are turned away and police often say, we're not a vetting agency, love. These sorts of things, right? Because I hear it from victims. They are telling me firsthand. The data from the MPCC, October 2021 to March 2022, that reveals that at least 56% of criminal background requests made were denied. We know Claire's law doesn't work because of all the murders that have happened. The problem is, if the police don't put on intelligence or information about a perpetrator's history, it's not there to search. And that's where it falls down. Even with the convicted offenders, you know, it might be criminal damage, it might be burglary, it might be something lesser, like inter or interfering with a motor vehicle. But that could have been, like in Rana Faruqi's case, he cut her brake pipes and it was crimed as interfering with the motor vehicle. So it looks quite minimal, not like a serious offence, but yet it is. He tried to kill her. So there's all these points where a failure, a potential failure, and so women are being turned away and thinking there's no history, but nine times out of ten there is. And I know that from running Paladin, that often I would say to the police, can you tell me about that criminal damage? Can you tell me about that burglary? Can you tell me about that affray? Oh, no, it's not relevant, Laura. And I say, as a favour, you know I was in the job. Can you just tell me what it was? And then, oh, actually, it was an ex-girlfriend. He broke into her house. He had a knife in his hand and he was wearing gloves in the middle of the night. And I'm like, OK, so that's crimed as an affray or a burglary. That is not. So, again, you get cases that are minimised 
Claire's Law is a major... I mean, people see it as a, a comfort blanket, but it's not. It doesn't work. And if there's the register, it would, it would make that system work, i.e. they have to put information and intelligence on in detail on the national database that is searchable by other regions because we know perpetrators move. So it's really not rocket science, but we have to deal with the convicted perpetrators where we know there's history, make sure that their history is joined up. And then you've got a larger percentage who are unconvicted. And these are, we know 80% of stalkers aren't convicted for stalking. And I remember with your case, Isla, you would after you telling me everything that was going on over a period of, of months, I said to you, it's a Section 4A stalking. That's what he should be charged with. And what do they do? They charge him with the Section 2A. The, and the 2A is the magistrate's court offence. It's the much lesser, maximum sentence, six months. We never wanted a 2A of stalking, but that's what the Home Office lawyers advised. So the 4A should have been heard in the Crown Court, maximum sentence, 10 years. And the problem is you get this slide by the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, because it's cheaper, quicker, more expedient for it to go to the magistrate's court. And that's where it falls down yet again. I ticked every box to justify 4A. So 4A is, you know this already, but it's stalking with fear of harm. And 2A is without fear of harm. All my evidence was, I'm scared of him. I'm terrified. Even if you change the route that you would go to work or change which coffee shop you go to, you change something about your life, that's justifying a 4A. I left the country. I couldn't justify it more. The nightmares that, I mean, that's one thing I haven't mentioned. The nightmares are absolutely horrific and I, they're lesser now, but I would wake during the night and if there's any noise... I mean, literally, it's, and then I'm thinking that I'm phoning the police and I'm trying to scream my address and I can't get my voice out, all these horrible, horrible things. But I, I was extremely fearful for my safety. And again, I there was no discussion with me about that. It's like, this is it. And I've I have heard of other people who've really tried to fight or retrospectively say that should have been blah, blah, blah. And again, it was, I kept getting told that I was lucky. I was lucky that my case was going this far because many people don't. And it's better for them to go for a lesser charge because they're more likely to get a conviction and all those things. I've got a friend who was kidnapped and they didn't go for the kidnap charge because they went for, I mean, I'm not going to go into the entire story, but they went for it really badly assaulted her and they went for that instead. Now that did go to Crown, but the Crown... The, the judge or whoever it was said that it was the worst case he'd ever come across and they wished that it should have been a more severe charge. And um, he was jailed, but for a very small period of time. So that's another thing I wanted to talk about, actually, is jail. Without doubt, there are some people that need to be in jail. They are absolutely intent on causing harm to the person they're fixated on. But I think that even those that do go to the jail, they need to have ongoing therapy counselling to try and, I don't think you can ever be rehabilitated, but there needs to be an intervention there. You can't just lock them in a box for them to fixate and plan and get angrier and angrier because that's when they come out and that's when it's really dangerous. So there has to be something, you know, beyond the point of jail as well. And again, this is where the register comes in. Um, at the moment, and I, I do question whether I should say this out loud, but stalking, 
you want to commit a crime and get away with it, stalking's a pretty one good good one for you to go for because the likelihood is you will get away with it. And uh, the victims are victims for the rest of the lives of the stalker. As long as that stalker's alive, you're at risk of being stalked by them. So I think that that's something that's also really important to look at is the, the, the role the register would have. And I think, I mean... Most stalkers are smart to be able to carry it out and to manipulate and to make excuses. They're not stupid. So they'll know that being on a register will have a practical impact on their lives in other ways. So it's a deterrent of sorts anyway. And that's another thing I think that's just, again, it's a it's so obvious. It's a no-brainer. And to, it just doesn't make sense to me that they'd, they'd agreed to do it and then they had their, their U-turn. It doesn't make sense. And I know there's, I'm so glad that the domestic violence um, offenders, although 12 months and over, and the same for the coercive control. But why on earth aren't stalkers in the same bracket? As you say, murder in slow motion. You and I have had conversations before thinking of significant cases that the headline is murder. Rewind it back, stalking. My podcast case right now, 45 years ago. Do you know how many people, this is a brilliant scientist, a geneticist, a very clever woman, very well respected. She told so many people, if I'm found dead, it's him. If it looks like suicide, it's him. If he kills me, he'll get away with it. She told everyone. She told her divorce lawyer and she knew what was going to happen to her. She got interim interdict, which is the equivalent of what would nowadays be a restraining order. He breached that goodness knows how many times. She knew what was going to happen. It was utterly preventable. It was a perfect example of murder in slow motion. And he was so clever as a scientist, he knew how to get away with it and almost did. 82 years old, he's finally been convicted. 45 years after the event, and it was an absolutely brutal murder. It was premeditated. He was almost laughing in the police's face because what he did afterwards, all the actions, it's quite an intricate thing that he did. And we're still in that same position now, even though I use different words, even though I interview in a different way, even though I'm telling a story from a long time ago, there's still murders happening in recent times and there'll be more in the near future, sadly. And it's the same thing again. Murder and slow motion will continue as long as you know things stay as they are. And the only things that can intervene is by the system changing. And you need to be praised. I mean, I've said this to you so many times. I view you as a superhero. You really are an incredible human being, not only to be mother to the most gorgeous little boy and, you know, a a great friend and all those other things that you are as a rich human being. But to do the job you do, to dedicate so much of your time in all these cases and educating people, it's it's remarkable. And I'm I'm so honoured to know you. And I tell Literally every interview I do, I say, you need to speak to Laura Richards. Go the and I tell all my friends to listen to your podcast because we really can learn so much. It should be mandatory that uh, police officers listen to crime analysts because that's where you learn. That's where you learn. The devil is in the detail, as you often say. It's the minutiae. It's the insidiousness. It's all the, the context. And that's where if they learn about it, that's where they can go, ah, 
I recognise this because they are men. They don't have to think about crossing the streets at night. They don't have to think about whether they can wear headphones or not or what are they wearing or, you know, where are my keys to stick between my fingers and all that. They don't have to do that. It's not even in their thought where it's so intuitive to us. But by learning about the stories that you tell and that I tell through my work, that's where there can begin to be change, I hope. Well, thank you, Isla. And I appreciate you saying that. I have to say, you know, almost 30 years on, I am literally just, you know, tearing my hair out because culturally we need to change things. We need to change the systems. And when I worked in policing, I thought that we could create change from the inside. And we did, by the way. The Met led the world in what we did, myself and the teams that I worked with. And we reduced domestic murders by 58% year on year. That's 33 people less dead. That's huge. That happened for 13 years of us using the dash, training on the front line, having a risk, a multi-agency risk management panel that where we take the high risk cases. And when we went after the top 10 to 20 serial domestic abusers and stalkers, we were the first in the world to do that. And ironically, Scotland followed suit because my old boss, Steve House, went to Scotland and he was responsible for brigading all the Scottish police forces. And he brought in the work around serial perpetrators and Essex police. They had 12 murders of women all in a row Horrific cases, Maria Stubbings, Jeanette Goodwin, uh, Christine Chambers and Shania Chambers, I can name them all like it were yesterday. They failed significantly. Their new chief constable came in, Steve Kavanagh, who I worked with in the Met on the Racial and Violent Crime Task Force. He was responsible for the proactive task force where I put the top 10 to 20 nominals that became the top 100 and his team went after them and we had great results. Well, Steve Kavanagh brought that into Essex. So slowly, all the people I've worked with in the past, they would bring this in. Then they move on and it all stops. I leave the Met, it all stops. This is my tremendous frustration with the revolving door of chief officers, not just the front line, but the leaders, because the promotion culture is such that when the new broom comes in, they sweep all the old out and they start again. It's disastrous for victims. It's disastrous for women. And you were having your own work quoted back to you recently. There was something that you'd introduced years ago and other people going, hey, we've had a great idea. And you're like, well, actually, I told you about that 20 years ago. It's that kind of stuff. It's like, you've got the information. You've got the knowledge. You've got the advice. And they need to take it from you. And they need to do it. I mean, in Parliament, yes, I was repeated back my work that after Sarah Everard, after Baroness Louise Casey's review, finding institutional misogyny and sexism and racism, well, I was told by Jess Phillips, oh, have you heard of the V100? It's the Met going after the top 100 violent and dangerous men. I said, oh, my work from 2001. Look, I did an article with Lucy Bannerman from The Times and I was really embarrassed by that article because I was featured. It was a picture of me in, in the intelligence cell and, you know, met go after the top 100. And then the Evening Standard did a follow up. And I wasn't really, I worked in intelligence. I wasn't used to my face being on the front of things, right? I was always in the back office doing the work and it, it wasn't about having a public profile. So that felt really uncomfortable. But thank God she did that article to show the legacy. This is all what we did, turning this culture of a reactive police force to a, a proactive police force. And I was so proud of the work that we did, of all the people I worked with to make that happen, saving lives and changing lives. 
I created this risk model that everyone uses to refer the top 10 to 20 or the top 100 to a multi-agency panel. All of this exists. It can't just be dependent on the Met doing it post Sarah Everett. We need every police force to do it. So that's what's being debated present day in the Victims and Prisoners Bill. The government reneged on the stalkers. They did bring in if a coercive controller has been sentenced to 12 months or more, then they will automatically go on Visor, the Violent and Sexual Offenders, which will be renamed MAPS. It's a new system coming in. And they will be managed by MAPA, the Multi-Agency Public Protection Arrangements. And that's a, a small portion, but it's something to build on. I asked the government to match it so that we get the same with stalkers. They reneged on it over the last couple of years. They think that guidance and pieces of paper will create change. But I said to them, we know that that doesn't create change. And if it doesn't work, which we know it won't, and Gracie Spinks was murdered in this time, then I will be bringing it back. And the Victims and Prisoners Bill was debated today in the House of Lords. And Baroness Glenys Thornton and Baroness Jam Royal have brought in two amendments. And there's two amendments. One is around the serial perpetrators, those who have been convicted, so that they automatically go onto Visor and are managed by MAPA. But there's also a probing amendment about MAPS, the new system, to ensure that domestic abusers and stalkers will go on it. That will replace Visor. We also have an amendment about ISACs, the independent stalking advocacy caseworkers that's been tabled and supported by all the peers that I've worked with to ensure that they're in every region of the country and that they're included in the bill. And we're still clarifying the one on the unconvicted offenders because I really want to ensure that there is some form of duty on police that they all have to have that they will go after and problem solve. And I, firstly, they have to identify them, I should say, identify their top 10 to 20 serial, repeat and dangerous domestic abusers and stalkers and that they go to the multi-agency risk management panel. So it's really important. People can sign the petition as well. So you can be active, sign the petition. It will be in the show notes and you can write to your MP because it will ping pong between the House of Lords and the House of Commons, the Victims and Prisoners Bill. And we really want to ensure, at the very least, we get the convicted offenders registered so that their history follows them. And, of course, I'm pushing for the unconvicted. So there are things that people can do. It's a huge piece of work that has just been such a uphill struggle. And people always ask me, why? What's the disconnect? What's the disconnect? And I always say, I've had almost three decades to think about what the disconnect is. Every question that's been asked of me, I've answered. I've financially costed it and shown that it will save money. It will save lives and save money. We know a murder now is £3.2 million to investigate. When I was doing this work as the head of the Homicide Prevention Unit, I costed it at £1.54 It's now almost double. We know domestic abuse costs £66 billion to society every year. I'll correct myself and say domestic abusers. That doesn't include all the stalkers, but it's the perpetrators and we need to be focusing on them. It's the fact that we're so reactive and do nothing and just load victims up with safety plans. And I'm so nauseated with it. We will save money by going after the people who cause the problem and, and problem solving them and giving do they need mental health support? Do they need to be in prison? Do they need both? 
right? Do we problem, how we problem solve them, just like we do sex offenders, terrorists, serious organized criminals, we close down their opportunities to offend. It's really that simple. So when people say it's a resource issue, I always say, well, it's 66 billion pounds a year. It's 3.2 million pounds per murder. This is not about money. You save money, you save lives. So what is it about? And now I throw my hands up in the air and I say it's about misogyny. It's about women and children not mattering because I can tell you if men were being killed at the same rate, it would be a national national crisis and women would be curfewed if it were women doing the killing. But there is no real outrage. There are in some corners, but not in all corners. And I'm talking about corners of government. I'm talking about the people who can create the change. I'm talking about the senior chief police officers, the senior social workers, mental health professionals, all the professionals who can make these changes and they choose not to. That's a choice because the good practice is out there. And so now I pinpoint that misogyny and women can be misogynistic too. It's internalized because we live in the patriarchy. I mean, look at what just happened with the Oscars, Isla. I mean, you and I both fo you know, follow what goes on in Hollywood. The Barbie movie, breaks box office records. Greta Gerwig did a fantastic, incredible cultural piece that challenges patriarchy and the Oscar goes to Ken. I spoke about that on TV today as well. And I echo the outrage. And there was a, a brilliant quote from a women's group and it was something like, you couldn't write it but Greta Gerwig did. And it's true. And it's just, you know, without, and thank goodness Ryan Gosling did speak out and say, this would not have happened without Margot Robbie, without Greta Gerwig. There is no Ken without Barbie. And he is, he's upset about it. Thank goodness America Ferreira has got a nomination, but it's not okay. And we see this again and again. I think you're absolutely right what you said there about if it was the other way around. I know you refer to it as femicide, but if it, if it was meant, there'd be a special task force Without doubt, um, the labelling, if something's called terrorism, immediate action, or drugs, immediate action, but murdering of women or domestic, it's just immediately not taken as serious. And um, that is all to do with attitudes. The reason why, sorry to go back to this case again, the reason why this case that I've just done took 45 years, the, the Crown, the police, even the defence said it's because of attitudes it didn't go to trial at the time. There wasn't a silver bullet in the evidence. And this is, as you say, this is what has to change. And how can we make that change? Again, we go back to the storytelling. I just think that you need to, there needs to be, I don't know, an AI version of you, a hologram training every single police officer that walks in the door so that they can start off with the right mindset, you would hope. But it also goes down to, and I've been interviewed about this before, um, it's about little boys, parents teaching little boys about rejection, teaching them about respecting women and the language that we use to boys and girls when they're young, also allowing boys to express themselves emotionally, because we know a lot of that. What can happen is repressed emotion inability to deal with rejection can create monsters when they grow up into adults. So we need to start, you know, way back there. And I'm Glad I know that your little boy is going to grow up to be an incredible young man with really great ethics, morals, respect for women. Um, unfortunately, not all men have grown up in that way. So it's well, I hope so. 
I hope so. But it's a work in progress. I mean, every day I have to challenge myself because, and it's not just me, it's about what are the messages around him every day that he's consuming and hearing. And so it is the macro as well, right? You know, Dr. Brenda Page did everything right. She told everybody what was happening to her, which is one of my golden rules. She knew she was at risk of death by him. And he was allowed to terrorize her. So you use the word terrorism. This is terrorism. Terrorism by men of women. So I call it terrorism because that's what it is. And I firmly believe if it were happening the other way around, there would be a very serious response to it. And I hear from lots of girl dads, by the way, who are fully supportive of what I do because they have daughters. They know now the risks to their daughter. But we need all men, because I'm so sick of hearing, but it's not all men, Laura, it's not all men who are violent, not all men are stalkers, not all men are domestic violence perpetrators, we know. But as women, we don't know who are the goodies and who are the baddies, and hence why we need a register to say, serial stalker on the forehead, right? So that we know, so that when we ask a question of the police and they tell us there's a history, we can then make a decision. Do we want to stay with that person? But it is an informed decision. And we might decide today we're going to stay with John because we want to help him because women are always taught to help people. And I always say, don't do that shit. You're not his rehab. You're not there to rescue him. He needs to rescue himself and do the work himself, right? I have no sympathy anymore. I have no, I'll correct that, empathy anymore because we all have things that happened in our childhoods, things where we could continue to play the victim, the poor me pity card But actually, as an adult, it's up to us to take ownership of things and to try and be better humans so that we don't project all of the terrible things that happen to us on other people. So it's actually self-incumbent to do the work, right? And you also need the parents and everybody else to work with younger children, age-appropriate relationship advice to them of what's healthy, what's abusive, Right. So that all needs to happen, too. But at the very basics, people join the police to protect, to serve and protect. And right now, they're not protecting women. If anything, they make things worse, because as what you said, Isla, what tends to happen is it's like kicking over a hornet's nest when they deal with things inappropriately and women are left unprotected and we're not given any protection and the perpetrators allowed to do whatever they want. And it's the woman who's being gaslit, and that's not okay. And being made to feel that if they change A, B, and C, and if they do X, Y, and Z, the abuse will stop. But the abuser will not stop on their own. And that's what needs to change. And it is this, it's a cultural shift. It's a big cultural shift. Even from a, for a woman who has a black eye, I still hear it present day when someone says, what did you do to deserve that? Versus... Who did that to you? Language is so important. And the Victims and Prisoners Bill, you know, it's not perfect. There's lots of things that do need to be tweaked in there and debated. But I do feel that this is the next best vehicle to try and create that cultural change. So, you know, I say to all my listeners, we don't have to be passive. And women should use their voices and men who are the non-abusers. And guess what? There's more of us who are non-abusers than the abusers. And I firmly believe in Pareto's principle, the 80-20 rule. So what would it look like if all of us joined forces who were the non-abusers and held the abusers to account to challenge them? Yep. 
those men who you're saying, they're saying, oh, it's not all men and I'm a good guy. Okay, what do you do when you're in the pub and you're with, with your mates and there's conversations and language? Now, whether they ever act upon it or they're just behind a woman's back going, oh, she's a bit, uh, I bet she'd like it. You know, do they intervene? Do they say, sorry, mate, that's not okay? No, <laughs> they don't. It's just banter, but it's not. So everyone is responsible. I mean, I believe this with basically everything in life. We're all responsible for our own personal revolution. And we have to hope that by our example, others will learn. And then the ripple effect occurs that you're creating change by changing yourself. And that's where men have to step up as well. And I think it's sad. I've, I've actually heard from male friends of mine who say, now that I've got a daughter, I look at things very differently. How they would back in the day look at a lad's mag on the magazine rack. Now they're like, oh, that's is that woman wanting to do that? She's been exploited. But it shouldn't have to take them having a daughter that's their own DNA that they're then genetically predisposed to want to protect to not be a bad man or a predatory man or an objectifying man or whatever. So yeah, there's there's so much to learn. And films like Barbie which I think it's a Trojan horse because what could be more harmless than Barbie? And I'm sure quite a few men went to go and see it to, to ogle it Margot Robbie, another attractive woman in it. But the, the lessons in that film were just beautiful. That monologue about as a woman, we can't be this, we can't be that. And, I, I, you know, you and I face those things on a daily basis, the multiple roles that we have, but you can't be blonde and wear makeup or whatever and be taken seriously as, a, you know, an investigator of crimes or all those things that we have to deal with on a daily basis. So storytelling for me, the work you do, that the men work don't. I do, that men don't exactly. So we need the men to start shouting for us. So well done, Ryan Gosling, for, for standing up for them, but it doesn't, doesn't change things. Do you know, I found out something interesting, though, about the nominations, which I didn't know before. Best director, that is chosen by other directors, but the Academy as a whole can choose best picture. So when it was the larger group being able to choose, Barbie does come into the categories. It is a nominee but not for director. So, and I, I wonder how many of the directors choosing that are male. Well, we probably know the answer to that, right? I mean, the proportions of, of women on any board or even in the Cinematographers Guild, the Directors Guild, I mean, it's just a tiny fraction. You know, it's similar to why we see the same icons on posters for music icons, the male photographers taking male pictures and of the women it's always for the male gaze they always have to be in a sexy pose or anything else just never gets through and therefore we miss a lot of female icons because of it I mean a lot of it just comes down to this constant battle in the patriarchy and people just don't see it there are women who think oh well I'm immune to this it's not me I'm one of the women who's up there but really they're not they don't realize that actually there's a big pay gap and there's a, the pink tax on women's products. I mean, it's around us all the time. And every framing, every framing is about favouring men. And it's within even women's DNA to do that because we were brought up in the patriarchy. So I always ask people just to challenge themselves, first of all, that little voice in their head when they see things or they hear things of, you know, who do they blame or who are they attributing uh, something negative to? And nine times out of 10, it's to the woman. 
Yeah, she was too cold or she was not emotional enough. She wasn't caring enough. She wasn't nurturing enough. She wasn't, and none of this applies to the man. He's just a very clear communicator that's a great leader, but she's an ice queen. Oh, she's, yeah, really cold and bossy. You know, all these things that matter. Yeah, bossy when she's being clear with directions. So we're, we're loaded up every day, but this does, this part of the conversation does play in because it's all these things that get us to where she feels entrapped and she feels shame for what's happened. And he is given empathy because something happened when he was a child and we want to try and help him. And we just want him to get help rather than actually know he's not just a sex pest in inverted commas. He's somebody who stalks women and makes them feel uncomfortable. And he's done it to eight women before. And he's murdered Gracie Spinks, you know, and it doesn't just happen at that acute end of the murder. It's for me, having run the homicide prevention unit, I look at all the history, the psychological autopsy of everything that happened prior. You know, and people can say with well, Dr. Brenda Page, that was many years ago, but it still happens present day in cases. And, and that's what we're trying to change. And I appreciate all my crime analyst listeners. I know so many of you write to me and say, thank you for being our voice, Laura. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. But it takes all of you and me. It can't just be me or Isla on the mic. It, we have to all use our voices and stand up to say it's not acceptable and it's not okay. And that's where it begins. And hopefully we have people who take us seriously and we can start to get into creating real change because it only changes when you rise up. And that fire, you know, the spice and the fire is the anger can come from injustice and being victimized, but using that anger into activism and to create real change. I mean, that's what I've been doing with the serial perpetrators work for almost three decades. And I really hope for the victims, for the families that this change happens because it is just common sense. Absolutely. So I'm going to wrap there, Isla, and just thank you so much for your time. I know you've had a really long day. I can talk to you for hours, and often we do talk for hours whilst we're walking the beach or we're in the UK, and you're one of my dear friends, and I really appreciate you being so candid and honest and open about what happened. I know you want to see change too, so thank you so much. And thank you for having me, and again, thanks for all your work. I really appreciate you, and uh, yeah, once again, it's an, an honour to be in your life you know, and to be your friend and call you my friend. Oh, thank you, Isla. I appreciate you and value you. And for my listeners, remember, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.